U of I's Discovery Partners Institute chief is stepping down. And Boeing's move to Chicago in 2001 was a big win for the city. But what did it actually mean for Boeing? I'll discuss it with Crane's Stephen Strahler. It's hard to separate uh, just how much of the problems that Boeing has had trace back to the headquarters move uh, as opposed to the changes in culture that occurred in the executive suite that may well have happened even had they remained in Seattle. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Monday, February 5th. Are you sick of not being your bank's top priority? We are too. At Wintrust, we take a different approach to banking. We're proud to be your one true banking partner focused on your unique financial goals that's right in your backyard. Whether you're opening your first account, buying a home, planning for the future, or starting a business, we have tailored solutions to get you there. Stop settling and start experiencing a better way to bank at Wintrust.com. Wintrust, different approach, better results. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, member FDIC. Boeing's move to Chicago in 2001 was a big win for the city, but was it actually good for Boeing? Joining me now to discuss, Crane Steven Strahler. Welcome back to the podcast. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you, Amy. Of course. So let's back up, talk about that strategic decision of Boeing's to put the headquarters in Chicago and kind of what that did to shape the company. Well, at the time, remember back about the turn of the millennium, Boeing had been growing through acquisitions and mergers, primarily with a big deal in 1997 to uh, merge with McDonnell Douglas based in St. Louis. This gave them a much bigger uh, palette to um, work from, uh, brought them into the defense contracting uh, field in a big way. And the company felt that it would be better for top management to be based somewhere in the middle of the country, which would put it closer to Wall Street, closer to Washington, D.C. and the Defense Department, and um, away from any single production facility. They wanted to remain an honest broker among all of their heritage uh, units, including the main one in Seattle, where Boeing started in 1916 and had, at the time, about 80,000 workers there. So they the the rationale for the move mainly was to uh, put a buffer between top management and that uh, major plant location that they had. And then talk to me about everything that happened in the C-suite, kind of that culture shift and, and uh, sort of a, a revolving door of leadership once Boeing got to Chicago. Well, whether by coincidence or not, the company really started changing once it got here. Uh, within a couple of years, the CEO who in, you know who picked Chicago and in, engineered the move was out because the much lauded Boeing had gotten caught up with a procurement scandal involving the company's chief financial officer. So the CFO was axed, and the CEO resigned, essentially falling on his own sword, saying, you know, it happened under me, so I'm out of here. At that point, they brought back a former Boeing CEO who had come 
with the McDonnell-Douglas merger. His name was Harry Stonecipher. So he's CEO, and in just about a year or so, he is out because of a consensual uh, relationship with uh, with another company executive. But when his wife found out, uh, she filed for a divorce, and it became public, so he was out. At that point, Boeing turned to a complete outsider. Well, maybe not complete because he was on the board of directors, but he was a low, he was a Chicago area native named Jim McNerney. He had risen through the ranks of General Electric and had been in a famous three-way horse race to succeed Jack Welch at, as CEO of GE. Uh, when he lost out, uh, he was available to go to work for Boeing. Initially, things went well, but it was the beginning of a series of top management uh, that came more out of the financial engineering background of, uh, of a GE-type organization than the traditional engineer-first Boeing culture. And, and what did that do? Kind of that idea of, uh, you know, this insulated headquarters that wasn't really, you know, doubling down on any of their production cities. Did that have the effect that they wanted it to or, or did it kind of backfire on them? Well, in retrospect, it backfired because the reason we're talking about this today is that given all of the, the unbelievable developments that have plagued Boeing, tragic, uh, fatal crashes. The most recent one was, I hate to call it comical. It would be terrifying, right? You know, it, yeah. was, it was a near disaster, but no, no lives were lost. The plane landed safely, but to have a piece, uh, what's called a door plug, a cabin panel, just blow out of the airplane in mid-flight is, is unbelievable. So you've had all, all these developments and whether it's correlation or causation, they've all occurred under top management, which did not grow up through the Boeing engineering ranks. And now there's another, you know, of course, as you pointed out, the reason why we're talking about it now, right? Because there, this is all kind of back. And, and it seems like it, it's back just as we were on the tail end, right, of the grounding as a result of two fatal crashes. It seemed like they were kind of just getting that conversation finished. Finally, China had lifted restrictions on that aircraft. And here we are grounded again, right? Um, so it seems like it's so cyclical. It, it, it almost, like the PR black eye here almost seems like too much to crawl out from under. So what is what is the task now that Calhoun is faced with, the current CEO? Well, he's on a, uh, a humbling tour of Boeing facilities and promising uh, Wall Street and analysts and, and the media that, um, that Boeing has to do better. When I got that picture, I didn't know what happened to whoever was supposed to be in the seat next to that hole in the airplane. I got kids, I got grandkids, and so do you. This stuff matters. Everything matters. Every detail matters. I know I'm preaching to the choir here. This isn't a lecture, not by any stretch. It's nothing more than a reminder of the seriousness with which we have to approach our work. You know, he's admitted they, they've screwed up, and... Um, 
uh, taking it to heart. He's been uh, called out by uh, uh, the very, you know, the most important uh, people uh, that he needs to please, and that uh, that are his airline executives, both Uni- United's uh, chief and, and American CEO, have, have said literally that Boeing has to get its act together. Huge thanks and compliments to the Alaskan Air team that flew the airplane, number one, pilots and crew, who got that airplane back on the ground at a very tumultuous moment, in very scary circumstance. They trained their lives to do that, but you don't know till you know. And then what about the more recent headquarters move, leaving Chicago, uh, announcing in, in, was it 2022? Time's kind of, the last couple of years have run together. Um, but, but moving to Arlington, Virginia, what does that tell you about culture changing at, at Boeing? Well, it, uh, you know, reflects that uh, increasingly Boeing um, doesn't feel that it needs to be headquartered near one of its principal uh, production facilities. It does reflect the fact that, you know, the federal government is a major customer of the firm and they want to be close to it so that they can, you know, react appropriately. Boeing, I think at the time, basically said it came down to, you know, real estate, a question of space that they, you know, found that moving, moving out of Chicago and to Arlington, Virginia would simply be a better real estate uh, situation for them. Mm-hmm. And then talk to me about Boeing's stock buybacks and dividends. You, you charted that data out and kind of took a look at how it's looked uh, since about 2012 or so. And, and what does that story reveal? One analyst points to this as the, um, the smoking gun of what, what happened to Boeing's investment in technology in the future. Instead, uh, between 2012 and 2017, the money they spent on paying investors dividends and buying back stock went from 1.3 billion to 12 billion, almost tenfold increase. And that increase meant that these outlays were accounting for almost all of its operating cash flow by 2015. And again, uh, what that shows is that Boeing was perhaps more attuned to financial engineering, the stock price, and so forth, as opposed to um, their airplanes. So, so given that, given the idea that questions around where their priorities lie, whether it's to Wall Street or to you know to basic safety expectations. It seems like it's more than just kind of this mea culpa tour that that Calhoun is on that that will be necessary, especially as we see you know Airbus coming in saying, "Hey, United, we'll buy out any other uh, planes to try to get United in this list." It seems like this kind of really interesting moment that aviation is really having because of Boeing's issues. So, so it's it, to me like what all is involved in overcoming these perception issues, given all of this, right? Given this revolving door of the C-suite, how much turnover was happening there just in that that last you know couple of decades? Given that we've we we saw uh, Dennis Muhlenberg leave after the two crashes. And this, you know, and, and Dave Calhoun come in. 
it, it just seems like there's, there's a long road ahead. What, what might that look like for Boeing to try to restore that kind of confidence and, and, and with, with not only the public, but also with their airline customers and regulators and all of that? Obviously, Boeing has three crucial audiences here. They have to assuage and prove that they can build planes that are reliable and stay in the air and don't kill people. And besides the flying public, the, their chief audiences are the people who buy their products. The airline executives who buy the commercial airplanes and governments who buy their defense products, their military jets and other hardware. So the place where we started was the question, was being in Chicago good for Boeing? And, and I'd return to that question. Ultimately, given how it shook out, was it good for Boeing to be in Chicago, even temporarily, uh, or, or, or was it not? Well, in, in retrospect, you'd have to say it wasn't because of how things turned out. It's, it's hard to separate uh, just how much of the problems that Boeing has had trace back to the headquarters move uh, as opposed to the changes in culture that occurred in the executive suite that may well have happened even had they remained in Seattle. But it it's pretty evident that uh, there was an increasing um, gap between top management and what was going on on the floors of these uh, factories. In fact, if you just look at their most recent uh, issue with the cabin panel blowing out, the company this week just admitted that it was their fault, even though the fuselage had been manufactured by another company. And they said that, in fact, the, the issue occurred when the door plug was removed in a Boeing factory and replaced. Another trend that happened during the period, whether it was related to the move of the headquarters or not, was Boeing's decision to outsource production of many of its uh, components that went into airplanes, including uh, whole fuselages. This was a trend uh, corporate American in, in general, but a lot of the issues that uh, Boeing has confronted uh, have related to the outsourcing, including the, uh, the manufacturer by a supplier of the uh, fuselage of the uh, 787. And we saw in the case of the door plug issue, that fuselage was manufactured by a um, vendor as well, although the company has absolved that vendor of uh, any problem with with the door plug. They, they have said the issue can be traced to the fact that the, the, uh, the, the panel was removed in Boeing factory, in a Boeing factory and replaced there. And that's where the, the issue cropped up. And talk to me about Boeing's culture prior to the headquarters move to Chicago. Well, Boeing's challenges did not begin with their move to Chicago. They're in a notoriously complex and capital-intensive business. They invented the jumbo jet. The 777 uh, was uh, way over budget and delayed. But once they were in Chicago, obviously the top 
executives were removed from the day-to-day uh, feedback that they might have gotten um, a better handle on some of these more recent problems that have cropped up. Well, certainly not the last time we'll be talking about Boeing. Uh, plenty more ahead, I'm sure. But thanks so much for swinging through and talking it over today. Alrighty, Thank you, Amy. Coming up, cannabis rescheduling faces an uphill battle, but a decision from the DEA is expected soon. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com gist and using promo code gist at checkout. Once again, to redeem this offer, visit chicagobusiness.com gist and enter code gist to get this deal while it lasts. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. Crane's John Pletz reported that Bill Jackson is stepping down as head of the Discovery Partners Institute, the University of Illinois' ambitious effort to create a high-profile research and education presence in downtown Chicago. Pletz noted that Jackson is leaving after four years in the job and just as DPI prepares to break ground on a $285 million facility later this year. In the meantime, the university will conduct a national search for a replacement, according to Tim Colleen, president of the U of I system. Pletz pointed out in reporting that DPI remains a work in progress. It grew in part from the idea of finding ways to more closely connect the U of I's top-ranking engineering and computer science programs in Urbana-Champaign with Chicago. He also noted that along the way, the pandemic has dramatically changed the loop, the nature of work and in-person collaboration. Inflation also soared, cutting into the buying power of the $240 million that the state set aside for the project when Bruce Rauner was governor. DPI is also the anchor of a much larger real estate project called the 78, which sits along the Chicago River near Roosevelt Road and Clark Street. And like other projects with a focus on office space, the original vision has been upended by the pandemic, the normalization of remote and hybrid work, and record-setting office vacancy rates. As discussed in a previous episode of the podcast, the site is also now under consideration to host a new stadium for the Chicago White Sox. Crane's healthcare reporter Catherine Davis reported that some 180 workers at the University of Chicago Medical Center were laid off February 1st, according to hospital officials. In a statement to Crane's University of Chicago Medicine, the operator of the hospital confirmed the cuts, which represent about 1% of the organization's total workforce. The health system declined to disclose specific roles affected, but said the majority are not directly patient-facing. Affected workers were notified throughout the course of the day on February 1st and were being given severance packages. Davis also noted that the healthcare provider did not provide specific reasons for the layoffs, but they did suggest that the organization faces financial challenges. UChicago Medicine, which operates the main medical center in Hyde Park and several outpatient clinics in the area, was the fifth largest health system in Chicago by 2022 revenue, reporting more than $2.7 billion in net patient revenue that year, according to Crane's data. UChicago Medical Center made up the bulk of that revenue with $2.2 billion in 2022 net patient revenue. 
Davis further noted that the layoffs come as UChicago Medicine builds a new $815 million freestanding cancer center on its Hyde Park campus. The cancer hospital is aimed at both consolidating cancer care that's currently spread across five UChicago Medicine buildings and with providing additional comprehensive cancer services for residents on the south side, a region of Chicago that's seeing an increase in cancer cases. Davis also noted that in December, the health system landed a $20 million donation to support the cancer center. Bloomberg reported that North Chicago-based AbbVie boosted 2024 forecasts as strong growth in newer anti-inflammatory treatments helps offset waning sales of the company's best-selling drug, Humira. Bloomberg noted in reporting that adjusted earnings for the year will be 11.05 to 11.25 a share, according to a statement from AbbVie on Friday, which is up from its earlier view of at least $11 a share. The outlook includes a $0.32 per share charge from acquisitions expected to close in the middle of the year. Humira, a treatment for inflammatory diseases like arthritis, is one of the best-selling drugs of all time and generated more than a third of AbbVie's 2022 revenue. Increasing competition from cheaper biosimilars dragged the medication's 2023 sales down by 41 percent last year to $3.3 billion in the fourth quarter. CEO Richard Gonzalez said in the statement that AbbVie is, quote, well-positioned to fully absorb Humira erosion and achieve modest operational revenue growth. Bloomberg also noted that the drug maker has been counting on newer biologics like Skyrizi and Rinvoke to help soften the blow. Both drugs beat Wall Street estimates in the fourth quarter, and AbbVie lifted its combined 2027 sales outlook for the duo to $27 billion, up by $6 billion from its earlier guidance. The company's aesthetics business, which includes Botox and Juvederm, also returned to growth, beating out estimates with sales of $1.37 billion for the quarter. And recent back-to-back -back deals with Immunogen and Cerevel Therapeutics at the end of 2023 are expected to help replenish AbbVie's pipeline of treatments. The $10.1 billion acquisition of Immunogen gives AbbVie access to antibody drug conjugates, a highly sought-after class of cancer treatments that directly target tumors while leaving surrounding tissue unscathed. The $8.7 billion purchase of Cerevel will add a wide range of early-stage and clinical neuroscience assets to AbbVie's portfolio, including potential treatments for schizophrenia, Parkinson's, and mood disorders. From Crane's sister publication, Green Market Report, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services' proposal to reclassify cannabis from a Schedule I to a Schedule III substance under the Controlled Substances Act faces an uncertain effective date due to potential legal battles. Green Market noted in reporting that the recommendation, if approved by the DEA, would shift cannabis into a category that recognizes its medical benefits and lower potential for abuse versus Schedule I substances. Green Market pointed out in reporting that the reclassification could impact several legal and economic aspects of the industry in major ways and likely faces delays from opposition and court proceedings. Green Market noted that the timeline for the proposed change remains unclear, but also noted that once the DEA reviews and endorses the HHS recommendation, a proposed ruling will be filed with the Federal Register, which is expected to initiate a 60-day public comment period. Green Market's reporting also indicated that during the comment period, opposition groups may request a hearing before an administrative law judge. The DEA would then need to issue its final ruling with any reclassification effective 30 days later. However, if the decision is appealed, the timeline could be extended for further judicial review.
Green Market also noted in reporting that the potential reclassification is expected to have significant financial implications for the cannabis industry, particularly by removing the 280E tax burden, which would improve cash flows and attract more investors. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's reporter, Stephen Strawler. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.